The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. As the world has changed dramatically in recent weeks, our jobs have changed too. If you're looking to explore the science of making sense of work in these trying times, you should check out Work Life with Adam Grant, a podcast from TED. This season, you'll learn how small wins can help you fight burnout, how you don't have to fight loneliness at work alone, and what veteran remote worker, a.k.a retired astronaut Scott Kelly does to build mental resilience. Listen to Work Life with Adam Grant wherever you get your podcasts. I know I always do. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. We're at this critical moment this summer in our country and in the world. Protests against systemic injustice have touched every corner of the globe. But protesting in an equitable system is just one step. There's so much work that needs to come after it. It's one thing to put out a statement saying Black Lives Matter. Of course they do. It's another to recognize that our words, however well-intentioned, will never take us as far as our actions. Most organizations, companies, businesses, schools, even if they care deeply about this, they have a lot more work to do. Our systems were never designed to be fair. The inequity is built right in. So how do we change them? For today's show, I wanted to speak with someone who knows that real cultural change is possible because it's her work. She's seen it. Dr. Darnisa Amante-Jackson has made a career out of helping groups to become more equitable. She studied people and cultures for a long time, both as an anthropologist and then as an educator. And after she finished a doctorate at Harvard, she founded DEEP, the Disruptive Equity Education Project. When schools and companies really want to do the work, they hire DEEP. And Darnisa, she has this phrase she uses throughout our conversation, with love. It's an acknowledgement that people will fail in big and little ways as we struggle to have these difficult conversations. We must not blame them or shame them. We must do this work with love. Here's Darnisa. So tell me, Darnisa, do you believe that change is possible? I absolutely believe change is possible. I, I believe it because I see it daily. But I know that the change that we want is only possible when people are willing to sit in the discomfort of multiple truths. How do we start to create the system, the environment for, for people to do that, for people to, to sit in the discomfort? Mm -hmm. I think there are a couple of different ways that we can do it, but I'll start by describing one of Deep's biggest frameworks, which we use both in our education and our corporate space, which is around something called cascading accountability, right? So if you really think about it, the mindset change, the organizational change that we need has to really start at the top. Right. And it gains momentum like a snowball until we reach the bulk of our organization and our staff, and they are contributing and collaborating to the change that we say that we want. But folks need leaders to define how much change we can engage in at any given time. 
So if you think about it in the diversity, equity, and inclusion work, there are two big questions that a leader has to ask that initiates whatever kind of mindset change we want. The first question is, do I want to disrupt inequity or do I want to interrupt it? Interrupting inequity is a pause. So this is advocacy that would encourage us to consider policies and practices. We're going to name things, but we're not necessarily going to shift the policies, create an industry standard, and hold people accountable. But we will be accountable to naming. And if that's the interruption that I want to do, the mindset change that you want is for people to be successful in giving feedback and being able to have a difficult conversation and being able to say the things that need to be said in order to name the elephants in the room with love. And if we want to do disruption, a disruption is an end to inequity. That means we're holding systems and people accountable. And disruption requires a mindset of failing forward, right? Your folks have to be willing to iterate on iteration on iteration, Because what this means is we're going to have to talk about all the forms of oppression. We're going to have to be okay not knowing what those forms are. We're going to have to be okay not knowing how to solve the whole problem. We're going to have to relinquish this need to have closure because closure doesn't exist. This is multiple lifetime work when you're disrupting. (laughs) There's so much right there. (laughs) Um, And so I I want to know a little bit about when you... How do you know if they're really able to work with you versus expressing that they want to work with you? So for schools, I'm looking at the conditions for readiness, which normally include how much equity or diversity or inclusion work has this system done before, right? So has this school or this school system engaged in any deep learning around what it takes to change outcomes for students, right? To remove predictability. I'm also looking for a profile of their superintendent or their principal. How much risk are these folks willing to engage in? Do they seem excited about learning how to model a culture, right? Are they excited about the uncertainty? You know, there's nothing wrong with being worried, but in the worry, is there an excitement for change? And if I hear Mm -hmm. those things, you can build capacity at every level. Right. It really has to start with willingness of a leader to engage and to lead the process vulnerably and publicly. Yeah. Yeah. For corporations, we're looking for that same profile, but except indoor executive leadership team and in your board. Mm-hmm. Has the organization ever done work before or have they released statements about Black Lives Matter? But do I hear them saying we released a statement, but we're not exactly sure what that means? That vulnerability to name what you don't know is the condition that you also want to start with, with a corporation as well. What you're looking for is not just someone who's going to put out the press release or make the statement that says Black Lives Matter, but is going to go one step further and say, hey, we think we don't fully understand what exactly. that means. And we are we are willing to talk about it. That is the piece that I don't see very often in the midst of this cultural moment, but you're also providing a framework for how to have that conversation in a way that people can come to it wherever they are, 
And and I want to talk a little bit about what your framework is. Mm-hmm. That's right. So both sides of DEEP. So we have DEEP that does our work with schools. And then we have DCCP that does our corporate work. Um, both sides are based off of the same framework. And that is what we like to call the diversity, belonging, inclusion, and equity spectrum. This is really a long-term roadmap for how you progress through this work over time. So for our listeners, diversity versus belonging versus inclusion versus equity are all different forms of work. They require a different mindset and they require different skills. Let's talk about each Mm -hmm. of those. In the podcast that I listened to in the run-up to our conversation, this was kind of a big aha for me. Diversity is so often what we think of as the end goal when it's actually the first step. It is the first step. So what are we talking about when we're talking about diversity? Let's start first with the time frame. Usually you would expect an organization or a corporation to move from diverse practice to inclusive or equitable practice over six to 10 years. Okay, so this whole spectrum takes multiple years And it's important to know it's not because we're not urgent for change. It's normally because we don't have the structures built yet that facilitate the movement between those different types Mm -hmm. of work. So diversity is the first step. And I don't want to undermine any organizations here who have been doing diversity for multiple years. The larger your organization, the longer this takes because there are more people. So diversity Mm -hmm. is a culture of appreciation. You know you're doing it well because you've started by looking at your demographic data. This is for schools or corporations. So who's there? Do you know or have you authenticated what all of the diverse groups need in your system to feel seen? So a great example Mm -hmm. is many schools and organizations remove cultural days altogether. So the thought is, if we don't represent anything, then we can't exclude anyone. I hear the point, but by excluding everyone, that is actually the opposite of diverse practice. Diversity is equality, folks. And the reason you need to do diversity first is we have to be able to equally appreciate all identities and all cultures before we start talking about marginalization. If you start preferencing a culture before you've universally acknowledged everyone, people feel left out. They feel invisibilized. So that's what diversity is. It's a culture of appreciation where we are doing everything in our power to represent the different identities, the different cultures within your school or your organization. If I'm in diversity, I have to represent the totality of experiences that everyone needs to feel validated. So while Juneteenth is very important, there are other cultural holidays that will be important as well in a diverse space. Mm-hmm. Belonging is the sweet spot for us all. Belonging is where schools will see the biggest changes in the opportunity gap. And belonging is where companies will see the biggest change in retention and recruiting. So belonging is different than diversity. Belonging is saying, even though everyone here now feels seen, there are certain practices here that are making people not feel welcome, even though that's not our intention. So belonging requires work around probing 
and implicating ourselves in non-belonging. So our belonging is our willingness to sit in a difficult conversation to build authentic relationships. You know you're doing it well. People feel championed for. You have created a structure where people can actually talk to each other. So this is affinity groups. This is employee resource groups. That is belonging, not diversity. That's what we're going for, right? right? That's everybody's showing up, seeing themselves reflected in an organization and in in, in the whole. And it's not about lowering expectations, right? Because the further you go through the spectrum, after belonging is inclusion, right? So inclusion assumes that you know people are not trying to replace you, right? We're not trying to do racial replacement. Inclusion is saying, now that we've built these authentic relationships, are we willing to have new perspectives inform how we plan? Usually what happens is we have communities of color who are in our buildings or in our organizations, but they're not administrators or they're not senior executive leaders. So they they have an ability to inform change, but they can't codify any of it. Right. Inclusion is saying you don't just want to diversify and make your pipeline more brown or black. It's what perspectives have never been here, that in absence of them being here, we will replan the same oppression in a different name. If you have not built belonging, you cannot do inclusion. That is tokenism because you haven't built the authentic relationship for people to actually feel like you want their voice, you want their perspective. They feel hired or promoted for identity alone and people will leave. Yeah. That is why people leave is because you have us in the room, but you don't really want our voice. You want my voice for the picture, but you don't want it for the policy change. And that's why inclusion is so hard. We normally jump from diversity to inclusion. That's like leaping the Grand Canyon, Jesse. There has to be relationship in the middle to facilitate a bridge from I'm going to appreciate you to I now want your perspectives and leadership in an authentic way that will change this school or this organization. And belonging is the bridge. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... 
We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. So how do you build authentic, meaningful relationships, which mm-hmm. are often uncomfortable if you're being vulnerable and if you're growing together? How do you help organizations and companies create that, the opportunity for it? It starts from the top. As I mentioned in that cascading framework, the first work that we do is really supporting our most formal leaders, administrators, superintendents, CEO, you know, our C-suite folks. It's defining the work, right? Like what exactly does this work mean? And having CEOs and administrators being able to model transparent leadership. One of our deep team members, uh, so graciously, uh, Mikkel Oliver Brand, I always want to name her as I say this. Mikkel says that there, uh, there's a difference between transparency and honesty, right? Honesty is when you say something after someone has asked you. It's reactionary. Transparency is saying something before it is asked. And it's proactive and transparent leadership is the thing that fuels people to move through this diversity, belonging, inclusion spectrum. When leaders are transparent and when they can name how they have failed and grown, when they can make failing not feel punitive, that is a natural part of the process. People are more likely to lean in to this type of work because they've watched their leader model it. And it inspires people because they realize to do it, you have to claim your humanity, right? What it means to be human is to be imperfect. And if our leaders can't mirror or model imperfection, there is no work. There is no spectrum. And that's where we start. We're coaching our leaders. Like, why do you care? And if if you can't start there, the work feels very inauthentic to staff. And to external communities who are watching you do this. Darnie, so when well-intentioned people come in who want to work with you, where do they start? Sometimes folks have done work and they're not able to qualify why they were successful or not successful. So I would say the first category is I am not sure how to assess the impact or efficacy of what I've done. So that involves us doing a gathering stage to look at How much of this learning has actually been embedded? How much does the organization remember? If people cannot name what they know, then they can't do. Like people have to claim knowledge before they can do. So usually we're assessing what's known. The second bucket of questions for well-intentioned folks are normally, I have no idea where to begin, but I know I must. Mm -hmm. So the best first step in the work is usually an assessment or understanding of the work that has to happen. Mm -hmm. I don't want to pop anybody's bubble here, but I will tell you after having supported more than 3,000 organizations over these last few years, our contexts are uniquely, freakily similar. There There are really not that many uniquenesses in terms of the inequities we experience. The uniqueness is how we have to differentiate the approach for your organization. But almost everyone has the same challenges. The best first place to start is define the work. And those challenges, Mm -hmm. 
What do they look like? So those challenges normally are, I don't know how much this costs. So how would I budget out this work over multiple years, knowing it takes multiple years? Other challenges are, we don't really have time. So we want change, but we don't have time. We don't have time in our calendar. We don't have time in our budgeting process. This just does, we just don't know how we're going to make this fit. Um, The third big challenge is I want to do something. I just don't know how to measure if I'm impacting change. So how do I measure that? And then the fourth one is how do I continue to build the capacity of people in my organization or school, knowing that we're going to have people leaving and being hired across this whole spectrum of work? So how do I sustain it? And those are the, the four biggest questions we get. And, and to answer all of them, you know, I would just say you sustain the work by codifying it along the way. Hmm. If you don't have HR or folks who are devoted, like a working group or a working team, to codifying your learning, it will never be sustained. Hmm. And then I would say if you don't even know where to start, the first place to start is with your leadership. Your leadership has to be willing to define how far your school or your organization is willing to go. Like if we don't know what the end goal is, it doesn't matter how much training you do. It doesn't matter how many coaches or management groups you have come in. Your system will never know where it's going and everyone will be spinning in a circle waiting for direction. You know, those challenges all seem like they're structural excuses for Mm. a core fear. Mm-hmm. that taking on this work will disrupt the status quo. I guess the central question is, is any organization really capable of introducing long-term sustainable structural change, even knowing that it's going to disrupt the idea of what that organization is today? Yes, 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 yes. I am affirming that yes. And I'm going to go back again and say that comes from that initial definition and defining from the leadership about how far we are willing to go. Yeah. That's how we have to start there. So if we say, for example, we're going to interrupt, that is a different path to sustainability. But if we're saying we are going to disrupt, that means that over time, we will be considering how to redefine our vision incorporating new voices in our mission, and as we diversify, supporting people and relinquishing traditional positions that they might have always had. I think what's helpful to know, though, right, equity is not zero sum. It doesn't mean discounting the hard work of folks who are in those positions now to say that we have to lower standards or lessen expectations for communities of color for us to be in those positions. So that's not it. I want us to frame and name it here. The reason that equity even has to exist is because there is a system, an invisible system of oppression that is creating very visible and non-visible structural barriers. That the reason we often don't have people of color in leadership roles is not because of a lack of skill. It's an unconscious bias around who we believe is expert. Right. So a part of the shift is, as you do the work, 
people's biases around groups change. That's the belonging, right? As we start to do all these storytelling, you start to build relationship and understand that folks are not lazy. They're not in lack of want of the roles. They really have opportunity, but no access. So the application is out, but my name is Darnisa. So now you see my resume and you already know who Darnisa is. That unconscious bias might not even make you call me because I have a name that might sound more ethnic to folks versus someone whose name might be Melissa or whatever else. Now, if I'm in inclusion, I'm in the room with you and I'm informing your perspectives. You know this isn't a lack of skill, which makes equity because you realize I'm qualified for it. I've always been qualified for it, but I'm not asking you to leave the room. I'm just asking you to step to the side at the table. That's what I want folks to understand about equity. It's not about taking. This is not Robin Hood politics here. This is not discounting the work of people, undermining it to put people who are less qualified. This is about fairness in the truest sense of the word. Meritocracy doesn't exist here yet. There are people working their butts off daily who have opportunity and no access. I would argue that it's a long-term play for greater success, whatever whatever you're doing, whether you're in the commercial sphere and you're building a product or whether you're educating children, when you really check your biases and broaden your sense of who brings ability to your organization, then you learn that there's plenty of talent. That's right. And the better you get at sourcing that talent, the more successful you're going to be. But I want to go back to what you said earlier. This is not an overnight process because it has to do with building trust and relationships and truly shifting our mindsets. And you just can't do that overnight. No. Um, this is this is an investment over the long term. And I, I w- would love to know from you, what does that look like? How much, what, what kind of time are we talking about? I've found that diversity normally takes one to two years to do well. So you should be expecting staff to be trained anywhere from two to three full days a year with continuous coaching to your leadership team or your managerial team monthly. And that is for each level of this work. So that's like an average time commitment. I would say it's anywhere between 90 to 150 hours a year easily. And so what tends to happen is teams who are successful in getting out of diversity usually do some sort of analysis of time. Like we have to do a time audit first. So for schools, if our master calendars don't allow teachers to meet or our administrative team to meet, then we will have to spend time getting that there. Um, For our organizations, if there are no times to process outside of function-based meetings, if we don't have working groups organized, if there are no employee resource groups or affinity groups, there is actually no space to build the appreciation that we want. And this is why a lot of folks get stuck. They don't have the time allotted or the structures allotted to even allow us to get into belonging, which requires more time. Belonging takes about two to three years. And you're imagining that it's going to involve more conversations across the organization and staff as opposed to the leadership. Belonging is all students, all teachers, right, or all organization employees. Are you seeing an increase in demand for this work within organizations? Are they willing to pay up right now in a way that they weren't six months ago? 
Um, definitely seeing an increase in demand. And I think with love, a lot of our corporate clients, at least, are actually asking, what does this cost? Like there's so many of them have not, and this is not in a judgmental way, didn't know what they didn't know about how much to invest. What we're seeing now is our companies who have done support with other organizations in the past are coming for one day unconscious bias trainings. And we're saying, no, that's not the work. So I'll tell you one thing about the deep team on either side, nothing we do is quick. Nothing, because it has to be thoughtful and intentional. So we've been reframing to folks that one unconscious bias training, one board training, one half day leadership retreat is not the work. That's maybe we can build some trust. You know, we could maybe define a vision, but it won't stick. So we've been supporting folks in actually understanding what they have to invest year over year. Um, And then just some folks are going to have to do fundraising differently. Um, And others are going to have to talk to their boards to reprioritize spending. In so many ways, 2020 feels like it is about breaking things, right? Like the pandemic has challenged the economy. Mm -hmm. Every institution that I grew up expecting to be strong and to hold is now under duress and breaking down. And every belief system that I grew up within is now up for re-examination. We're rethinking it. And in all of that destruction, there's great opportunity because we can rebuild. We can rebuild better, stronger, and, and more equitable than in the past. But the reason I love thinking about the work that you do is because you you are part of the rebuilding, that you're making your career out of a belief that communities can better serve the people in them. It's inspirational. And I just so appreciate it right now. Mm, Thank you. And if it's helpful, you know, one thing that always keeps me going, I love Rumi, the poet Rumi. And Rumi has this poem that ends with, the wound is the place where the light enters you. And I hold that very close because there are so many of us who are being wounded metaphorically by having to watch institutions that some of us love change. Some of us are still confused about what happened in the 60s. We thought we were the whole way. We've got a whole generation saying, we've been telling you this for years and why didn't you believe us? At the same time that some people are losing relationships because people are watching this happen and still don't believe it. But in the midst of all of this pain, right, that is the place where the light can enter And sometimes in the darkest moments and in the darkest pain, hope with intention is the thing that leads us through. And then the place where you've been wounded, if you believe in this mindset work, if you know this really works, right, you become a beacon and you can beam back to people and help lead them through really dark moments. So I'm here for being wounded in that way, though I don't want to be physically hurt. Because now that I'm wounded, I've just got gaps for you to see the light. Because it's always been there. And that is what keeps me going. Because I know I will be hurt. I know this will be hard. I know this will be uncomfortable. But what a benefit to such a wound as that, is to become a beacon. Yeah, I'm here for that, Jesse. I'm here for that. And, and that's the work. Like, it is. And... For the folks listening, I really do believe this because as one of the people who've been asked to lead so many spaces, if I don't believe that, what am I leading people towards? 
yeah. not hope. And that's that's for me. This is why we always say with love. This is why I can't blame or shame people. Because then I'm I'm just a reflection of what I don't want to be. And then I'm beaming the wrong light to people. There's enough judgment in this world. I'm not trying to contribute to any more of it. The wound <laughs> is where the light enters you, folks. So wound for that's all of us. So beautiful. I love the with love, too. Going to take two big ideas from this conversation into every part of my life, Darnisa. The first is making room in everything for the belonging. Mm-hmm. And the second is with love. Oh. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jesse. And it was a pleasure. That was Dr. Darnisa Amante Jackson. To learn more about our work with businesses and schools, visit digdeepforequity.org. If you've got thoughts on this work, share them at hellomonday at linkedin.com. That's hellomonday at linkedin.com. Or come to office hours this week and let's talk about it. Producer Sarah Storm and I go live for my LinkedIn profile every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern. It's our coffee break, so grab your mug and join us. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm with help from Madison Schaefer. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Maya Mangini, Victoria Taylor, Michaela Greer, and Juliette Ferreau do the work with love. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. Thanks for listening. See you next Monday. I I hope we talk about your work again in, I don't know, a year or so. I'm excited to see all this change. This is just, it's, it's been happening for a long time, but the momentum of it all is like so inspiring.